right, so ready to start if you are. Uh, tonight we're going to cover chapter 17, Discipline of Witness. Then we're going to cover chapter 18, Discipline of Ministry. We'll switch over to the area of doctrine and we'll cover from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 27 on sacraments, 28 on baptism, and 29 on the Lord's Supper. Let's start with prayer. Father, tonight we are encouraged by you, uh, by your word and your spirit. We pray that you'll bless us as we study, as we think through the various topics ahead of us. We pray that you'll make us mindful of the Lord Jesus, who died and rose again, that we might be your children. We thank you for the victory that we have in him. We ask, O Lord, that you'll give us clear thinking, uh, minds to be able to absorb and to apply to ourselves the things that we're covering tonight. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Chapter 17 of uh, Discipline of Witness. Again, witness is another topic where it doesn't seem like it's a discipline. It doesn't seem like it takes effort, but uh, it does. So our author of this book, um, Pastor Hughes, uh, Disciplines of a Godly Man book, has this uh, quote, The greatest joys in pastoral ministry are in the normal, average avenues of everyday person-to-person witness, the things any Christian can do regardless of gifts or calling. So what he's talking about is discipline of witness to other people that you don't have to be ordained to do. You don't have to be a pastor to witness to your neighbors. So he gives a couple examples in the book. He tells a story about Big Jim. He was a fellow uh, boat captain uh, back in 1976. He tells a story about his daughter's kindergarten teacher, a woman named Susie. He tells a story about his neighbor, it's a guy who lives nearby named John. Tells a story about the United States postal worker, the letter carrier who brought the mail to his house named Damon. And he had such an impact on Damon that also on his wife, uh, Bobby. So these are things you don't have to be a pastor to do. That's his point. Another example he tells in his story is of a couple who was growing in their witness, Jamie and Debbie, and the impact they had on the neighbors. So... The idea that we're getting here is the aspect of witness, that if we put effort into it, that we'll have a witness to testify to those around us. Now we're switching gears to a biblical character, a person named Andrew. And Andrew might not have heard a whole lot about, uh, but he's one of the original 12 disciples of the Lord Jesus. Um, It might be significant that you haven't heard much about him because that's kind of the design. Uh, He was an average man who shared Christ in ordinary ways. When Andrew met Jesus, this was what was going on with Andrew. He was a follower of John the Baptist, the the last and greatest of the Old Testament prophets. We learn that from John 1.35. He had been baptized in repentance for sin. He was awaiting the Messiah to come, and he's the brother of Peter, the brother of Simon Peter. We learn that from John 1, uh, verse 40. So this is what's happening with Andrew when Jesus arrived. Oops. Andrew was the first, the first of the 12 disciples to follow Jesus. Yet Andrew never achieved top status among the disciples. Why don't we say, if you could list the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples, why don't people rattle off the name Andrew right away? They'll never seem to list him if they can list a few. There's no uh, books of the Bible. We don't have first and second Andrew. (laughs) <laughs> we have First and Second Peter, right? He performed no miracles that we know of. He was not bold like his brother Peter. There's something 
non-leadership about him, and yet he's one of the original 12. Why is Andrew famous then? Why is his name known at all? You probably know somebody named Andrew or Andy, right? Why is his name famous? It's, uh, why is he a patron saint of three nations, Russia, Greece, and Scotland? Why? Because he excelled in bringing other people to Christ. The very thing we're talking about in this chapter, discipline of witness, Andrew was very good at. He brought people to Christ. In the 8th century, a monk named Regulus brought the relics or the remains of Andrew to what is today St. Andrew's in Scotland. And then another story, supposedly the Scotlands were led into battle by a white X-shaped cross above them in the blue sky. It looks something like this. <laughs> so it became the white St. Andrew's cross on a sky blue background as the very standard of Scotland. Influenced by our own Andrew. What special abilities did Andrew have? None. Nothing special about him, just an average guy. However, he was a big-hearted man who cared about other people and loved to introduce them to Christ. How do we account for his influence um, and some of the things we've just listed? Because he had a heart for the lost and he would testify or witness to them. So he knows Christ. That's one thing we know about him. He was drawn to Christ. Another thing we know about him. That he was selfless. Andrew was known as Simon Peter's brother, but Peter was not known as Andrew's brother. You ever have one of those? Uh, Andrew introduced Peter to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll say that again. Andrew is the one who introduced Peter to Christ. A lesser man would have stumbled because Peter then excelled past him and became the well-known apostle. Uh, Some people will only join if they can lead. That's not true of Andrew. And it's not, it ought not to be true of us. We ought to be selfless and willing to let other people exceed beyond us. What else about Andrew's heart that we know? He had a good attitude. He was uh, something of an optimist. If you consider the story of the feeding of the 5,000 uh, in John uh, chapter 6, you know the only um, miracle story in all four Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000, aside from the resurrection of Christ, of course. Uh, a miracle story of something Jesus did during his earthly ministry, a feeding of the 5,000. So when it occurs in the book of John in chapter 6, it was Andrew who observed to Jesus that there was this boy with five loaves and uh, two fish. Um, Andrew seemed to have high hopes for what would happen when he brings problems to Christ. And it's his attitude that's on display. Our attitude makes a difference in bringing people to Christ. Wait till you see what my Savior could do with your life with what your problems are. So he had a welcoming heart. We could say it another way. Andrew's heart was expansive. Andrew was the first disciple to understand that Jesus is the answer for everyone, not just for Jews, for everyone. Everybody needs the Lord Jesus. So if you're going to think about witness, the topic here in our chapter is witness. How we testify and let other people know who Christ is It's relationship evangelism, some people call it, and it requires heart. So let's say you're an average person, no special skills in speaking or something like that. But God is big. And before you started to think about this topic, God's already placed you in a family, in a neighborhood, in a workplace, and he has you in all those circles for a reason. He's put people in your life that he wants you to influence toward Christ. Testify, witness to them. There's four networks we automatically have. 
First network is biological, the people that you're related to, um, brothers and sisters, parents, children, um, cousins, right, aunts and uncles, the people who are stock already in your family. Um, then you could also say church. I'm a little confused as to why he would categorize it that way, but understand the Bible is filled with language about us being brothers and sisters in Christ. So in that sense, we are around a network of people from our church, and we know people who are related to people in our church precisely because we're in church with them. So anyway, um, that's one network, biological. Second network is geographical. God has you living somewhere, and there's people you keep seeing because you live there. I never see them. You probably don't see my neighbors. But because you live there, you have a network of relationships with them. Third category of a network is vocational, where you work or where you go to school, the thing that you do most days, all day, the coworkers, people who are around you. It could be supervisors. It could be people who work for you. It could be fellow um, workers. It could be the contractors that come in on a regular basis, the people that your company has contact with, vocational, things you do during your work. And the fourth network of relationships is recreational, the things you do for fun on your bowling league or the people you hunt with, people you see when you relax or play or go to a game. Maybe a group of you always goes to the Brewers game, things like that. Those are people that you see on a regular basis and you could testify to them. So how do you do it? How do you do it? So next in our chapter, he uncovers for us how you get to the place of witnessing about Christ. First is you have to invest in relationships. Well, how do you do that? Just simply get involved. You have to spend time with people to get to know people. Um, You have to. There's no substitute for spending time with people. Secondly, to invite people out for lunch or to your home for coffee. You don't just have to be passive and wait for it to happen. You can be active and initiate Hey, would you ever like to get together for some uh, lunch? Um, Inviting people to have either refreshments or a meal with you is an acceptable way in our culture for people to connect. And then doing things together. Hey, um, you want to go fishing with me? Sure. And then you ordinarily might not, but because you want to invest in relationships and this person will spend a few hours with you, you might go fishing. Um, Playing uh, a game with them, whether it's um, a yard game or, or something. Let's say you're at a graduation party, right? And someone says, hey, you want to go um, in the backyard and toss the beanbags? Sure, because then in that beanbag tossing environment, there might be a conversation that happens. You get to know the person better. Doing things together, investing in relationship. Ask them questions while you're there. And using special days, uh, birthdays, holidays, weddings, birth. To visit the person, call a person, write a letter. It takes time and it takes intentional effort, but that's a way to connect with people because it's a big day for them or if it's a big day for you, you can invite them. But obviously the other people have big events that happen in their lives that you find out about and you can connect with them in that way. Another um, way to reach people beyond your ordinary circles is to join a club within your village a club within your city, Uh, thinking here about a chess club. It could be uh, a rod and gun club. It could be an automobile club. Anything that you connect with other people, a book club, right? Um, Those sorts of people get to know each other by meeting up on a regular basis. Obviously, right now with coronavirus, everything's changed, but you get the idea. 
volunteer to coach a boys or a girls team, you get to know all the parents, you get to know the students themselves, the opposing teams that you have to play, you, can, you connect with a lot of different people that way, and even the referees, right? To be a teacher's aide at school, to help at the hospital, the local food pantry, we have one here. Uh, open your home to neighbors, children and adults. Uh, invite people to come over. Your home can be a place of relationship and uh, witnessing. So basically you got the idea. That's the presentation of the chapter. There's a few discussion questions we have here. Number one, why do the people you know need to hear the message of John the Baptist? Look, the Lamb of God. Because they don't know. Either they don't know or they have been turned off in some way and can be influenced by you. If you know Christ, you have the essential heart qualifications to share him, even if you do not have all the answers. Do you agree with that? Because one thing we have to wrestle down is our hesitations. Why are we hesitant? Some people are hesitant because they don't have answer to the difficult questions that are going to come your way. Um, You have to be okay with that. Are you hesitant because you lack the answers? How could you overcome this? Number one, by relaxing about it and just accept that you're not going to have all the answers. And number two is you could study up on some of the questions that people are asking. What are, with what individuals has God given you a relationship so you can be a witness by life or by word? Um, notice the people around you already. Start to take um, notice of those that God has already placed you near. You already know their name or you've already seen their face quite a few times. Maybe you had a conversation about this and that, but you could have a conversation about spiritual things. What is lifestyle evangelism? To use this kind of personal outreach, why or why not? It's deciding what activities you're going to be involved in precisely so that you could connect to new people. Um, being involved with other people as a lifestyle on purpose. If you are like many Christians, the people you find most difficult to witness to are family members or relatives, and why is that? Because there's a safety within the family. People feel like they can say whatever they want, and yet people have hiccups with God. They have problems with the scriptures. They have problems with Christians. They have problems with churches. And they, if you bring up that topic within family, they're safe enough that they're going to let you have it, right? And their, their um, problems and difficulties with the church are things that you're going to find come up right away. Um, and, and they might distance themselves from you because you have a, a different viewpoint on that, and they might, might not uh, want to converse much about it at all. So it's difficult. How could you build bridges uh, by letting them know that you care and uh, trying to provide an environment in which it's accepting you are okay with them saying things that are negative about the church and about the Bible because at least they're talking with you and you can go somewhere with it. So we must invest our time, talent, and treasure in relationships. Should we do this only so that we can win others to Christ? What other reasons should we have? Practically, how we can invest. The other reasons are, these are people made in the image of God. They're fascinating people. Every person that God has made is by themselves worth getting to know. And so that's the other reasons. It's not simply a tool so that we can save others. Uh, I think there's some other denominations Uh, groups of churches that believe that way and you can kind of feel um, that they don't really care about you. They're not really listening. I've had people come to my door and and say they'd like to evangelize me and I say a couple things identifying myself and they act like they haven't even heard me. They just move to point number two, point number three of what they were planning to say. 
So um, we, have, we ought to have reasons of finding people interesting and fascinating and truly love them. So analyze the example of Andrew and his witness for Christ in Matthew 10, Luke 6, John 1, 2, and 6, 12, 1, 6, and 12. What made his witness so effective? We talked about that earlier. Um, he had a heart for the lost, and his message was, you've got to meet this Jesus. All right? That was chapter 17. Move on to chapter 18. Discipline of ministry. Second to last chapter of this book, and again, it's a topic that doesn't seem like it is requiring effort, but it is. So what he describes in this chapter are two different hearts. The small heart on the left and the ministering heart on the right. He goes through comparisons of contrast between what the small heart has and what the ministering heart has. In other words, are you ready for ministry? Do you have an interest and a heart for ministry? How would you know? Ask yourself, where are you? More towards the small heart or more towards the ministering heart in each of these categories? So the first category is relationships. We just segue from last chapter, right? Relationships. If we're going to witness and build relationships, a small-hearted person tries to avoid relationships. Don't want to talk to anybody don't want to um, get involved anywhere. But a ministering heart opens yourself up to others. That you're interesting um, to them because you're opening up about yourself and you're also wanting a two-way street and you're wanting them to open up and you're ready to receive it. Small-hearted people dodge troubles. They want to avoid difficulties that people have. They start telling you about problems and they don't want to hear it. Whereas the ministering heart is an index of sorrows. You have a place for that. You have an understanding for that. You, you have heard that before, and you're moving towards the person in their difficulty. A small heart uh, will not embrace ideals. Uh, they, they, they just don't think in noble terms. They don't think in principles. They don't think in um, big, grand, important ideas. Whereas the ministering heart has noble ideals. If this is the right thing to do, then no matter how difficult these things are, no matter what hurdles we find, we're going to try to do it. Small heart is deaf to discord. If people um, are not getting along with each other, they don't take notice. Um, they don't hear or see anything. They, they are not aware of friction between peoples. Whereas a ministering heart, here's the pain of others. That must be really difficult. I'm so sorry to hear that. Have a kind of an understanding or compassion for the hardships that other people are, are facing. You have an ear for pain. You can hear it. A small heart is a blind to ugliness. Uh, can't see, what's the matter here? I don't get it. What's wrong with that? Um, that's a small heart. Just not aware of the, the bad scene that people are living in. Whereas the ministering heart sees the hurts very clearly. Oh, I get it. I understand. What you're showing me, I, I feel like I'm there. I, I know that that must be so hard, and I, I understand it. I acknowledge it. It's there. I believe you. And uh, this is something that I have a heavy burden about starting right now, and I'd like to, to get um, involved, and I'd like to hear more about it. Okay? 
Last one, a small heart does not contribute anything. Uh, nothing to offer. I don't know what to do about that. I don't know what to say about that. I'm so sorry. Whereas a ministering heart will give yourself away. You get involved with your time. You get involved with your ideas. You get involved with uh, money and relationships and connecting people to see if you can help this person. So two different courses of life. What we've described here is either ministering or not ministering. It's either the discipline of helping others or uh, pulling away from others. Two completely different courses of life. So the path of ministry is described in this chapter as more ministry means more pain. More ministry means more pain. For example, if you play baseball, you might strike out. More pain. You strike out, it's embarrassing. Um, You wanted to hit the ball. Uh, Everybody expected you to. They're rooting for you, but you can't hit the ball. So that's a painful thing because you tried to play baseball. Same thing for ministry. If you try, you might be sad, it might fail, it might be difficult. Um, nothing seems like it got accomplished, so it's more pain than if you had just left it alone. Then another example is more ministry means more joy. It's also true. Both of these are true. More pain and more joy. And the example from baseball holds true again. This time, you're playing baseball, you might hit a homer in the ninth inning, bases loaded, to win the game, right? How do you describe such a thrill? I hit the homer. I won the game. It was my hit that brought the team to victory, right? That's a lot of joy. That's a a fantastic life moment. That only happens because you played baseball. You have to start. You have to get involved. You have to risk it. And ministry means more joy. There are come, going to come times in ministry where there's so much good that happens and there's so, so much of a thrill and enjoyment that you're really glad that you st- stuck with the uh, ministry, um, the opportunity that you had there, like baseball in, in both directions. So a ministering heart has to be ready for more pain and more joy. And so we see this example in uh, John chapter 4 with the ministry of um, Jesus to the woman at the well. Now, the context here is that Jesus was very tired. He was exhausted. And the one lesson that our author, Pastor Hughes, is drawing from that is that it's example for all Christians because the world is run by tired people. A lot of people are tired. A lot of leaders are tired. And the reason is they are willing to put themselves out whenever necessary in order to accomplish they're noteworthy tasks. If the task is worth doing, then we've got to do it even if it's raining. We've got to do it even if there's a roadblock. Uh, we've got to keep doing this even if there's technological problems. We, we have to keep going and find a way through because this is an important matter. And so these are people willing to put themselves out wherever uh, necessary. It, it's Jesus' heart of ministry towards the woman in the well is an example of how we ought to have a ministry towards other people. Um, in, it, it's good to keep ourselves balanced and take good care of ourselves, and yet the ministry calls us to do more, to get involved. So a little bit more on the tired people. Tired people in churches. The whole world is evangelized by tired men. You find me a missionary who's not tired. <laughs> right? Missionaries are making the most of a fleeting opportunity. It's a rare moment. They finally got to the field, and then they learned the language, and then they had this opportunity, and they're going to use the opportunity. 
right? They finally got halfway across the world. They brought their whole family over there. They're not there on vacation. <laughs> they're there to do ministry, and they're going to use it w- uh, well, that opportunity. So the same is here at home as it is on the foreign field. In any church at home here in the U.S., any great church, there are people there who are willing to put out as the situation demands. It's like they, the joke they say about job descriptions, as the demand requires, right? As needed. Uh, other duties as required. In any church that is committed to ministry, there's going to be people who are willing to show up and do what's necessary. So a ministry heart is a willingness to extend oneself for the sake of the gospel, even when really tired. One of his main uh, points there. Moving on. Now, ministry hearts are laboring hearts. Those with ministry hearts are the hard workers in God's kingdom. Maybe some examples from history. Martin Luther himself worked so hard that he would fall into bed and be asleep immediately, right? And he would not take time to change the sheets. Sorry, this is gross, but he would not change his sheets for a whole year because when he got up, it's time to go do stuff, right? And we came home, it's time to, to crash and go to sleep. So that's how busy he was. So another example, uh, more recent, is Dwight Moody. Uh, one time, he was working so hard that he finally got to bed, and he's supposed to say his prayers before he goes to sleep. So his bedtime prayer was, Lord, I'm tired. Amen. <laughs> he's asleep. <laughs> right? So the example of tired people, right? Even though they're weary, ministering hearts expend themselves. Use up all your energy by the end of the day. Ministering hearts are reaching out. Pass over relational barriers. You're the connector. You reach past what should be a stop, stopping point and reach over it. In John chapter 4, Jesus was a Jew ministering to the woman at the well who was a Samaritan. That doesn't happen. In those days, that didn't happen. And so Jesus was breaching a barrier. He was reaching across where ordinary rabbis would not. There's an example today of racial differences. Racial differences are really difficult. They're daunting barriers. It really is a very different world in another person's shoes. So in the earlier church, we have the classic example of racial barrier, which is the Jew and Gentile racial barrier. A ministry heart reaches out to anyone around him regardless of the barriers. If, if, since Christ can reach across Jew and Gentile barrier, all racial barriers can be broken, can be broken down, can be passed through for us as um, God's people. Another thing about ministering hearts is there's a perspective. We see life as an unfolding eternal drama in which God is working out his purposes. It's kind of exciting. You think about what God's up to today. What is God doing now? What is God going to do next? And there's a vision for great spiritual potential in any conversation on any given day. And so this is the kind of perspective that a ministering heart has. It's hopeful, it's eager, it's optimistic, it's excited. Excited hearts. So that's it. That was the chapter. I have a few discussion questions. Do you have a little heart or a ministering heart? Obviously, when we put out two different ways of viewing things, you want to ask yourself, which am I? The author described the two, so in your own words, you could describe your own heart. Is it little, wanting to learn more, or is it a ministering heart? Um, right, on, right on track with this chapter. 
What reasons could Jesus have found, humanly speaking, to not minister to the Samaritan woman? He could have said, she's a woman. I can't do this. He could have said, she's a Samaritan. I can't do this. He could have said, I'm tired. I don't want to do this. There's all kinds of reasons, humanly speaking, that he could have walked away. But why did he reach out to her? Because of his love. What lesson do we learn from these verses? First Thessalonians um, 2.9 and 2 Corinthians 11.27. Here's First Thessalonians 2.9. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. What lesson do we learn? The effort, right? It's toil day and night in order not to be a burden to anyone. They wanted to preach the gospel and not be slowed down and, and not be um, negatively impacting others. The other passage is 2 Corinthians 11, verse 27. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Wow. That's 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. Paul is saying go without sleep, go without food, go without warmth, and go without clothing. Um, what he means is I don't have the basic needs for my life. I, my basic needs aren't even being met. Um, what do we learn from this? What is the lesson here for, for ministry? I'm not saying take terrible care of yourself. But I'm saying that for a Christian with a ministering heart, the mission comes first. The ministry comes first. The issues that God places in front of us and the opportunities need to be capitalized on even when it costs us something personally in order to accomplish. <clears throat> Here's a, a quote. It's hallowed realization to know the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Psalm 37, 23. And that the people who pass our way are divine appointments. You've heard that phrase before, I'm sure. Divine appointments means God has set a certain person for you to meet on a certain day in order for you to share the good news with them. Is that how you see your life as it, as it um, unfolds? That you rub shoulders with or come so close to somebody that you have contact with them, right? At work or down the block, at church, in a rush hour traffic, in a restaurant, wherever you find yourself connected with other people, realize that the God who's sovereign over every square inch of this planet, has made that happen, made that appointment happen. So what does God expect you to do at that time? It is to look for the opportunity to minister to that person. Here's a quote. The heart which is disciplined to labor, to reach out and to see life's relationships full of divine potential is, above all, a dangerously enlarged heart. (laughs) Why is it dangerous? Why is it so dangerous for us to have an enlarged heart or a ministering heart. Because it costs you. It's really costly. It hurts. What might serving God and reaching out to others cost you? Cost you sleep, apparently. <laughs> cost you a food or a meal, apparently. Um, it costs you um, the comfort that you might otherwise enjoy. It, it, it costs you um, the, the kind of creature comforts that other people get to enjoy. Um, what else did that verse say? Been cold. It co- costs you warmth and it costs you the ability to get um, different clothing. What ministries are you currently involved in for Christ? This is a re- personal reflection question. Um, you could list them and evaluate your service. What ministries do you feel God might want you to withdraw from? Are there things that are not helpful or not fruitful? 
And what additional ministries might God want you to enter? What preparation would be necessary if you're going to enter that sort of ministry? All right, that was our um, life chapters for tonight, and we move over to doctrine chapters. These all line up tonight. All three of these chapters are about the sacraments. It's interesting that, first of all, the authors introduce what a sacrament is, and then they tell you about the two sacraments that we have. So it all works. All right. So these three chapters deal with the sacraments. Um, First is... um, Chapter 27. And the word sacrament is not in the Bible. Just like the word trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. So how do we know we're on the right track with this word sacraments? So we want a definition of the thing, not of the name. Because who cares about the name sacrament? What is it? We want a definition of the thing. But how do we get a definition of the thing? Think about it. If you want to describe what that thing is, what is God doing in baptism and the Lord's Supper, where do you go to get a definition? You kind of have to look at baptism and the Lord's Supper and figure out what they are. And that develops your, your opinion, your, your definition. right? It's not by studying the word sacrament. I could give you Webster's definition of sacrament. It's by studying the Bible and what it says about baptism, what it says about the Lord's Supper, and then you'll better understand what a sacrament is. It's by studying the practice of baptism and the practice of the Lord's Supper and what they point to and their symbolism, their elements. We take the two sacraments that God has instituted that all people acknowledge, all Reformed people acknowledge to be genuine sacraments. Protestants say there's two sacraments. The Catholics, of course, say there's more. But we take the Protestant sacraments that everyone acknowledges And we examine their origin, their nature, and their uses. And from that study, you back up and then give yourself a definition of a sacrament. Um, So we determine the character of the class of the ordinances to which the baptism and the Lord's Supper belong, whether any other ordinances belong to that same class or not, and how the ministers went about making the definition of sacraments that's found in our chapter. So all that is introduction for what we're about to read. All right, sacraments, section one. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him as also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world and solemnly to engage them to the service of God in Christ according to his word. That's quite a nice definition. (laughs) Signs and seals of the covenant of grace. First thing that we notice, right? It's drawn from what is said in Romans 4, 11 about circumcision. Romans 4, 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe 
without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. So a little shout out to Abraham as we're studying in our church. Um, Abraham on Sunday nights with Pastor Tony. Um, Signs and seals of the covenant of grace taken from this scripture passage, uh, a reference to um, sacraments. So it's also immediately instituted by God. That's, of course, instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ. It also confirms our interest in Christ, puts a visible difference between Christians and the world. If you're marked with a sacrament that's visible to God and a visible difference between us and the world, and lastly, engages believers in the service of Christ. Um, we can also go to Westminster, larger, or I'm sorry, shorter catechism, where it says, what is a sacrament? Listen to this, a little bit more succinct, um, shorter answer. A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible, things that you can sense, um, taste and touch and feel, sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. So there's an emphasis on the object. That is, there's a proclamation of Jesus Christ in the sacrament. A position that the sacraments are memorials is not allowed in the view of the Westminster authors. They're not simply memorials. You don't find that anywhere here. That's not our belief in our church. Um, In other words, the sacraments are not signs of the faith of the believer. They are not signs of the faith of the believer. Both the proclamation of the word itself and the proclamation of the word in the sacraments are proclamations of the covenant Uh, not the response of the believer. That's a key difference between us and, for example, the uh, Baptist church. So all of these statements that are contained within this first section are objective, but they have subjective implications. In other words, they tell us what's real, right? Something outside of ourselves, objective, is like the covenant of grace exists, right? But it has implications for you because you're a child of God and the covenant exists makes promises to you. So it's subjective implications of an objective reality of the covenant of grace. Right? The next section is very important. I'm going to write this term up on the board, sacramental union, even before I, before I write it, before I read it to off to you. Sacramental union. We need to understand this phrase. Section two. There is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. Whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. Okay? Between the sign and the thing signified. So let me read from Westminster Larger Catechism 163. What are the parts of a sacrament? The parts of a sacrament are two. The one, an outward and sensible sign, used according to Christ's own appointment. The other, an inward and spiritual grace, thereby signified. Outward sign, inward grace. Two parts to a sacrament. So in Scripture, because of the union between the sign and the thing signified, the sign is sometimes virtually identified 
with the thing it signifies. For example, Genesis 17.10 says, speaking of circumcision, this is my covenant. The circumcision is not the covenant, understood in a universal sense. The covenant has already been made with Abraham apart from circumcision. But the sign is so tied to the covenant that this verse is able to express the sign as if it were the covenant that is signified by it. This is my covenant. It's not literally the covenant, but it signifies it. You get that. It makes sense. But we're not identifying the sign and the thing signified, but the sign so genuinely signifies the reality that the sign seems to be identified with the true thing. The spiritual relation is the other way they say this, spiritual relation. Between the sign and the thing signified, so that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. In other words, God uses the vehicle of the sacraments to actually confer the grace which the sacraments represent to us, the recipients. But as the next section will labor out, section 3, it will labor to point out this grace is not contained in the sacraments themselves, nor is it conferred by any power resident within the sacraments. No, that's not what we're saying. God has the power, God has the grace, and he confers it on us using the sacraments. All right, so the sacramental union is an important concept. Um, the connection between the body of Christ and this bread, between the blood of Christ and this cup, the connection between the cleansing that we have spiritually and this water in baptism. That's what we're referring to in sacramental union. We'll talk more about it as we get to each of the sacraments individually, baptism and Lord's Supper. Section 3. The grace which is exhibited or shown in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them, neither doth the efficacy of a sacrament depend upon the piety, that's the holiness or the character of, or intention of him that doth administer it, right, the, the pastor, but upon the work of the Spirit and on the word of institution, which contains, together with a precept authorizing use thereof, a promise of benefit to worthy receivers. Promise from whom? A promise from God. Right? So where does the efficacy of the sacraments? If you're, on your, if you're looking at your handout tonight, it just has titles, so I want you to see where we are, the, the categorization or the outline, like the table of contents and where this goes. So on our, on our current section, it's called efficacy of sacraments. What is the effectiveness? Wherein lies the efficacy of a sacrament? What makes it work? Why is it helpful? Why is it beneficial? What are the bread and wine? They're simply bread and wine. So what makes this bread and this wine special? What is the efficacy? It's the ministry of the Spirit. It's not because the pastor is so great. It's not because... Um, there's power inside the wine. It's because of the work of the Spirit. The efficacy, the key element is the Spirit. The key change agent, the thing that makes the, the bread and wine truly powerful spiritually is the Spirit himself. So in the printed Bible and the preaching, words are used. What are words? They're just words. 
But the ministry of the Spirit takes simple words, in our case it's English, right? English words, and makes them work to bring people to new life. People get converted through words. People get built up in the faith through words. People get sliced up and convicted for sin in words. People get tremendously encouraged with words. People get propelled to go and do something and serve God or even be missionaries and things like that. All from words. The ministry of the Spirit takes those words and does all that with them. People are built up in their faith. So just like the effectiveness of words takes the Spirit, the effectiveness of the sacraments takes the Spirit. It depends not upon any part separately, take the bread, take the wine, but on the sovereign power of God the Spirit who's always present and uses the sacrament as his instrument and as his medium. The efficacy of the sacraments, what they're saying here is, it does not depend on the personal piety or intention of the person administering them. Uh, however, we much, might respect or love this particular minister who's administering this sacrament. That's not where the power is. Oh, I just really love it when so-and-so administers the Lord's Supper. No, 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 it's not about that. It depends on the Spirit who takes the things of Christ and shows them to us. So that's clear. Section four. Now this one is about the administration of the sacraments. How do we give them out? There be only two sacraments ordained by Christ our Lord in the gospel, that is to say, baptism and the supper of the Lord, neither of which may be dispensed by any, but by a minister of the word lawfully ordained. Now this is the position of the Westminster divines, and this has been adopted by the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, so that's why we practice things the way that we do. We see this as scriptural, so let me make the case for it. There's something unique about baptism and the Lord's Supper. There are other things we do in the Christian church. For example, we ordain people, right? We um, are told in the Gospel of John about foot washing. There are churches that do uh, ceremonies of foot washing. There's other things commanded of us in Scripture. But only these two, baptism and Lord's Supper, share in the characteristics mentioned back in section 1. There's other things that are not institutions set up by Christ in order to display his cross. For example, penance, the Roman Catholic Church does. Confirmation, extreme unction, are not institutions set up by God. Or take one that's not Roman Catholic. Just take a more um, generic one. Marriage. Marriage is instituted by God, but it's not a sacrament. Ordination was instituted by Christ. We ordain pastors, we ordain elders, we ordain deacons. That was instituted by Christ, but ordination is not a sacrament. But these do not consist of this outward, visible sign signifying inward spiritual grace, and marriage does not represent the covenant of grace. Ordination does not represent the covenant of grace. Marriage and ordination represent seal, they do not represent seal or confer Christ and the benefits of the new covenant to us. They're wonderful. God has set them up. We're all in favor of marriage. We're all in favor of ordination. We participate in these things in our church, but they are not a sacrament. There's something special and unique about baptism and Lord's Supper. And so what they're saying is those who can minister the word can minister the sacraments. They belong together. Word and sacrament belong together. 
Whoever has been called by God to minister the word has been called by God to minister the sacrament um, in the view of the Westminster Confession. It's not because they believe there was a special grace transmitted at the ordination and now a resident within that minister is grace inside of him that somehow gets dispensed. No, 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 no. That's not what they're saying. Nor are they saying from the succession of the apostles down to present that a person has to be ordained or things like that. There's no priestly theory behind this uh, ministry of the sacrament belonging to ministers. Um, It only ministers administer sacraments. That's what they're saying. But it's not because of some priestly theory. Rather, it's because of the relationship between word proclaimed and word made visible in the sacraments. It's the word spoken and the word eaten, if you will. Eaten and, and drunk through the bread and the cup. It's the word spoken and the word splashed on, the baptism. If the gift of the preaching of the word is not given to a person, he must not administer the sacraments. They belong together. Does that make more sense? The preaching of the word is particular and specialized ministries. There are lots of people who can make speeches. There's lots of people who can study. There's lots of people who can get down into a piece of literature and understand it. But putting those things all together and presenting the word of God in a way that builds up and blesses a church of God's people is a unique and specialized ministry gift from God. So therefore, sacraments, where are they most properly in the hands of? They're most properly administered when done by those whose proper gifting and calling is the administration of the gospel message itself. If you can preach the gospel, you can give the sacraments of the gospel. For example, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 4, 1. Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ, listen, as stewards of the mysteries of God. Stewards are the people who hold on to it and they give it away, right? They dispense what's, what's under their stewardship. So we're for stewards of the mystery of God, we're giving away Christ verbally and also in these sacraments. Another example is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So God uses his ministers to beg people to repent in the sermon and he also asks people to repent in the sacrament. It fits, it belongs together. So that's the case that we make for it. Section five. This one's about continuity of the sacraments. The sacraments of the Old Testament, in regard to the spiritual things, thereby signified and exhibited, were for substance the same with those of the new. How can Old and New Testament um, sacraments be together? And the same, how could they talk like this? So there's logic here you have to understand, the logic of the covenant theology. The way of salvation in the Old Testament is the same as the way of salvation in the New Testament. It's by Christ and his cross, right? So the gospel in the Old Testament is the same as the gospel in the New Testament. Consider this, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 4. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 4. Baptism has taken the place of circumcision as the rite of initiation. Both circumcision and baptism signify 
spiritual renewal, spiritual regeneration, coming alive again, right? Second birth from above. Like Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, circumcise then your heart and stiffen your neck no more. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. That was Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. So circumcision was Jewish baptism, and baptism is Christian circumcision, if you want to say it that way. There really is a continuity from Old Testament to New because it's the same God and it's the same redemption through his cross. In the Old Testament, they were pointing ahead to the cross. In the New Testament, we point back to the cross. For example, uh, Galatians 3, verse 27, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Uh, Galatians 3.29, and if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Colossians 2.10, and in him you have been made complete. He's the head over all rule and authority, and in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Another example is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper grew out of the Passover, right? There's a direct connection. That Jesus took that old bread and that old cup, in a sense, and he gave them a new consecration and a new meaning that only Jesus could have done. Matthew 26, 26 to 29 what we often read at the actual Lord's Supper table. But also, as Paul uh, writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. So it's New Testament confirmation that Christ is the Passover. So if the Old Testament Passover is pointing to Christ, and the New Testament Lord's Supper is pointing to Christ, and we have the statement that Christ is our Passover, there's a strong link of Old Testament to New, Passover to the Lord's Supper. So this entered the debates of understanding the sacraments at the time of the Reformation, the debates between Calvin and Luther and Zwingli. It entered the debates. For example, uh, Genesis 17.10, they would discuss what this means. This is my covenant. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And there's a background to the sacraments in the Old Testament that enables us to read, this is my body, in such a way as to see the bread does not actually become Jesus' body, as the Roman Catholics say, but that the bread signifies the redemption purchased by the death of Jesus in body. And so this is what um, Calvin, Luther, and Zwingli would discuss among themselves, what does it mean? And we stick with what um, the Westminster divines have, have laid out for us. And Peter could write in his, his book of First Peter, baptism now saves you. It's a statement that needs to be read through the hermeneutical principle that we've uncovered here, the sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. The only way we can say baptism now saves you is because Christ saves you, and baptism signifies that. The sacramental union serves as the hermeneutical key. All right? So, we've covered what a sacrament is, and now we can go deeper into what baptism is. All right, chapter 28. 
Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Right? It's repeated what we said earlier. Of his ingrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which sacrament is, by Christ's own appointment, to be continued in his church until the end of the world. So this section uh, takes the material of chapter 27 that we just studied and shows how it applies then to baptism. So it's got to be consistent with itself. Everything we've said about a sacrament has to be true of baptism. And then the next chapter will be the Lord's Supper. Um, It shows how it's of the New Testament, how it's ordained by Christ, how it's a sign and seal of the ingrafting, how it signifies regeneration, of remission of sins, of giving up to God through Christ and walk in newness of life. All these things have to be true. So we start with uh, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. The sacrament is to be continued until the end of the world on the command and the authority of Jesus Christ, where he says, Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Uh, also, Paul supports this, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. By one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks or slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. So again, the unity described in the body is symbolized through one baptism in your life. Galatians 3, 27, all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Baptism symbolizes the unity of the body. And then Romans 4, 11, which we read earlier again from Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. So baptism hits all the markers so far that we covered under uh, sacrament in chapter 27. Here's section 2. The outward element to be used in this sacrament is water. Wherewith the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost by a minister of the gospel lawfully called thereunto. So it's simply talking about the element of baptism. What do we use? It has to be water. Um, The outward element is to be done in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And as pointed out back in chapter 27, section 4 that we just looked at, to be done by a minister of the Word. So we see their consistency. Pretty easy. Section 3 talks about the mode, the mode of baptism. How do we do it? Dipping of the person into the water is not necessary but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. So in the OPC, you're going to see both. Um, either one, pouring or sprinkling. Um, so dipping is not necessary, and what, what they're saying here is putting a person down under the water. You know that Baptist churches uh, do this. They cover the nose and back the person goes. Maybe you've seen that. So when composing the directory for the uh, public worship, there was a debate whether dipping should even be allowed as permissible as a mode of baptism. They debated this. Some thought yes, some thought no. But this could be read as if it were a concession, as if uh, dipping the person is not necessary, but it seems like it's allowed. Um, 
as if dipping or immersion were the true mode of baptism, um, and yet it's not necessary, so people allow pouring or sprinkling. You see how you could read it either way? Um, there's a greater likelihood that in the New Testament practice, baptism was administered by sprinkling or pouring, not by immersion or dipping. So the greater likelihood that early church practice, they didn't have clean water available to them constantly in all these different church locations to have the kind of dipping that you would need. All right. Section 4, not only those that do actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. So now we're talking about the recipients. Who gets baptized? Not only those who profess faith, but also the infants of one parent or both parents who believe are to be baptized. And there's a string of proof tests. So the covenant... um, is to be, the covenant sign is to be applied to the covenant children. Um, Here's some grounds. Number one, the covenant is to be made in Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of the covenant made with Abraham, Pastor Tony, right? Uh, Preaching on Abraham. And since the covenant made with Abraham was an everlasting covenant, the principles of that covenant are everlasting, which in their eyes, the eyes of our authors, specifically means the principle you and your descendants, which is so common in Old Testament covenants, is not an appendage to the covenant, but is of the very essence of the covenant. Covenant means it's passed along. It's like saying an inheritance. An inheritance is something that's passed along. An heirloom, right? If you have a a special object that belongs to your family that came from your great-great-grandfather, what are they expecting you to do? Burn it when you're done? No, they're expecting you to pass it along to your children, and what are you expecting them to do? To pass it along to their children. It's very... Um, inherent within the covenant that it's being passed along. So that's ground number one. Ground number two is the Colossians passage we read, Colossians 2, 11 to 12, that baptism is specifically said to take the place of circumcision. As such, as a sign of the same covenant of which circumcision was a sign, is similarly to be administered to infants. Ground number three, this covenant principle of the Old Testament that God makes a covenant with you and your descendants is confirmed in the initial promulgation of the covenant in Acts 2, verses 38 and 39. This is the instance where Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost and the people are um, convicted by his sermon. He offers baptism and then he says, to you and to your children. Uh, that, that's the uh, first time that the New Testament Covenant is being applied to uh, children, and it's a covenantal principle consistently applied to children of believers. The fourth is an appeal to 1 Corinthians 7, the passage in which Paul's speaking about the relationship between a believing and an unbelieving spouse. On the basis of that, Paul appeals to the continuation of marriage is the holiness of the children. And so the Westminster authors regard that as a covenantal holiness. And the last ground is the actions of Jesus where he said, let the little children come to me, for the, of such, to such the kingdom of God belongs. If it belongs to them, then the sign of it belongs to them too, right? <clears throat> it's like saying, you can drink a Pepsi, but you just can't have one with the label Pepsi on it. Let me get this straight. I can drink the contents, but my can can't say Pepsi on the outside? 
if the kingdom belongs to them, but they can't get the, con- the, uh, the label, the sign of that covenant, of course they can. The infants of parents who brought those infants to Christ belong to the kingdom of God. Section 5, the necessity of baptism. Although it be a great sin to condemn or neglect this ordinance, yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it, or that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. All right, so you get this. This is so clear. It's a sin to neglect baptism. However, it's not a necessity of means, but a necessity of precept. In other words, it's not required for justification. It's not required for justification. It's a sin not because it's a means of grace, but it's a sin because it's a command of Christ. You're disobeying a command. In other words, not to carry out a command of Christ to be baptized is to condemn, condemn, condemn Christ. That is the reason it's a sin to neglect baptism. The necessity of baptism is not one of means, but one of precepts. In other words, you see how they labor to be so clear here, saying that grace of salvation are not so connected to baptism that all who are baptized are saved for sure, and all who are not baptized are not saved for sure. No, 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 no. It's not that connected in that way. Um, the authors deny that baptism is necessary for regeneration. Say that to our Lutheran friends, right? They have a difference of opinion on that. And um, on the other hand, they deny that baptism guarantees regeneration. That was section five, section six. Now we're talking about the efficacy of baptism. The efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered. Yet, notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promise is not only offered, but really exhibited or shown and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto, according to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. So the blessing that's shown in baptism is not tied to that moment when it's applied the ordinance of baptism, to the moment at which the baptism is, is administered. But they're not denying that the blessing shown in baptism can take place at the very moment of administration. Even though it's an infant, God could apply salvation to that child even right then and there. For example, in infant baptism, the union with Christ and the forgiveness of sins is shown by baptism is not not tied to the moment in which the child is brought up to the baptismal font. But the opposite error must not be held either that regeneration never takes place at the moment that the child is at the font. It could very well take place at that moment. There's no reason under the sun why God may not choose to regenerate that child at the very moment that the sign of that child being regenerated is being applied to that infant. Section 7, the sacrament of baptism is but once to be administered unto any person. Now we're talking about the repeatability or the number of times that a person ought to be baptized. The baptize each person but once teaching is grounded in the principle that the start 
or the inauguration of union with Christ Jesus and the once-for-allness of our death and resurrection with him is important. How many times would you like Christ to die for you? Once. So since this symbolizes him dying for you, why not do it once? Right? It makes perfect sense. It would be inappropriate to repeat an ordinance that signifies a once-for-all phenomenon. In a similar way, it would be inappropriate to only administer the sign of the Lord's Supper once to a believer since the Lord's Supper signifies a perpetual, ongoing phenomenon rather than a once-for-all phenomenon. So baptism shows that he died once. The Lord's Supper shows that he blesses us constantly. So they're different signs for different purposes. Last chapter tonight, Lord's Supper. And on your handout, you'll see where we're going with this, that uh, section one is the institution of the Lord's Supper. Section two is not what the Roman Catholic Church says a mass. Section three is the celebration of the supper. Section four, it's not the abuses that the Roman Catholic Church does. Section five, the sacramental union now applied to the Lord's Supper. Section 6, it's not transubstantiation, which the Roman Catholic Church says. Chapter 7, is the right participation in the Lord's Supper. And chapter, section 8, the wrong participation in the Lord's Supper. So it's actually going back and forth. This is what we believe, this is what we don't believe. This is what we believe, what we don't believe. So they're constantly in contrast with what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, which was important in the context of their writing the whole of the Westminster Confession is to teach what Protestants believe, as over against what the Catholic Church believes. And one of the key places to do that is in the Mass or the Lord's Supper. It's very, very helpful to us, even down to today, that they've written in exactly this way. And they're not trying to be snarky about it. They're just being very clear about this is what we believe and this is what the Roman Catholic Church believes. So don't be surprised if we go back and forth tonight as we go through each section. All right. Um, they alternate between a correct understanding of the Supper and the denial of the abuses a Roman Catholic Church have. So 1, 3, 5, and 7 are positive explanations. 2, 4, 6, and 8 are abuses. Section 1, so this is one of our positive statements, okay? Our Lord Jesus, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood, called the Lord's Supper, to be observed in his church unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself and his death, the sealing all benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. So its section here takes on the material that we saw in chapter 27 about the sacraments and shows how it applies to the Lord's Supper, just kind of goes through all the list, right? Remembrance is an objective idea. And maybe you caught the word remembrance in here, but it's an objective idea. It's not to be reduced to our remembering. It is itself existing as a perpetual reminder to us. It's a remembrance in the sense of having a, a statue that constantly is there to remind us of an event or a person, right? A remembrance exists as a perpetual reminder. It's not just subjective. It causes you to remember, oh yeah, now I remember. No, it is itself an institution that is set up and continues to be the case because God has given it to us 
as a self-existing remembrance to us. And then when they say engagement, this simply means commitment. You know, this is ancient, not ancient, but uh, hundreds of years old language. And so uh, we sometimes have to make sure we understand engagement today means that two people have decided to get married, right? Um, But here the word engagement means commitment. It's pretty close. And then um, notice the community aspect of this. It's not just vertical to God, but also with each other. When you're taking the Lord's Supper, you're communing with God, but there's also this horizontal dynamic between you and other believers. We're members of Christ's mystical body and members of each other. There's a communal aspect to it. All right, now here's section two. Remember, the even ones are going to be against abuses, statements that the Roman Catholic Church believes that we don't believe. Section two. In this sacrament, Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for remission of sins of the quick or dead, but only a commemoration of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross once for all and a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same, so that the popish sacrifice of the Mass, as they call it, is most abominably injurious to Christ's one only sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of his elect. So, the, the, the goal of this is to say they're not making a real sacrifice of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Christ is not offered up again at that moment to his Father. It's a spiritual oblation or sacrifice of all possible praise to God. It's a spiritual sacrifice, or what uh, the book of Hebrews says, a sacrifice of praise. When it is seen as a real sacrifice, the uh, authors here are very strong in their language. They say it's abominably injurious to Christ's sacrifice. To think about the, what really happened on the cross and then to say this bread now being lifted up at this one geographic location is the same as that. Um, it is harmful to the concept of what the cross is. Um, think about it. If you need it to be repeated at all, ever, anywhere, the sacrifice of Christ isn't working. So the sacrifice of Christ would then be not adequate to do what Scripture claims that it does. So the whole of the gospel unravels when you take the sacrifice of Christ and say that uh, somehow it's missing something or is insufficient and we need to do it again. It's to undo the power of the gospel and the um, import of the sacrifice. So it's not a sacrifice. Now we're back to the odd section 3, which tells us a positive statement again. This is what we do believe. The Lord Jesus hath in his, this ordinance appointed his ministers to declare his word of institution to the people, to pray and bless the elements of bread and wine, and thereby to set them apart from a common to a holy use, to t- and to take and break the bread, to take the cup, and they communicating also themselves, in other words, the minister takes the bread and the wine also, to give both to the communicants, but to none who are not then present in the congregation. All right. So section three is about the celebration of the supper. Again, it's placed in the hands of ministers, not a surprise to you. And it's no reserving of the supper until a later time, no reserving of the supper until another place, or for persons absent. 
So this is one of the places we come to when in our current problem of live streaming and people not able to attend, we draw the line here. We say that people who are present in the room can partake in the bread and the wine, bread and the cup, but the people who are absent and watching through live stream are not able to participate in the elements of bread and wine, so they don't take the Lord's Supper. They can hear the gospel, they can receive um, the mercy of Christ in the word and have their souls fed that way, but they cannot drink the cup through live stream. And so there's the limit, and the limit is set by them not being physically present here. And it's amazing how this 400-year-old document is helping us with a current issue. Right? When it's seen as um, being retained until a later time or another place, it's not the Lord's Supper anymore. The Lord's Supper is a dynamic of being present there, in person. Okay? Christ is present in the dynamic of the supper. And he, his real presence is here spiritually. And so the bread remains bread, the wine remains wine, and um, the pastor takes both, and the pastor gives both. There have been errors. Any which way you can have an error, they've had errors. Some where they only give the bread, they won't give you the cup. Some where they only give you the cup, and they won't give you the bread. And he said, give them both. <laughs> give them, and the, the pastor takes both, right? And you can't give it to people who are not there. This is just like policing everything because it needs to be policed. Uh, we need to, to make sure that it's done um, correctly, right? And it's also, it's setting apart to a common from a common to a holy use. So let's say you have a child there, and we, we don't give the um, Lord's Supper to children. And everybody knows that, everybody agrees, but this mom has a fidgety child, right? And so now you say, well, can you just give them a little piece just to keep them quiet, make them happy? No, at this moment it would be inappropriate to give you a piece of this because we have now said this is a tray that's going around that anyone who takes this and each with us at that moment is going to be eating the body, and, um, the body of Christ. It is now part of the Lord's Supper dynamic that we're doing here. So no, the child can't just have a snack out of that tray. Right? That, that's the distinction uh, being made. So it helps us with current questions when we think through the dynamic of what is happening. Section 4. Private masses, or receiving the sacrament by a priest or any other alone... As likewise the denial of the cup to the people, worshiping the elements, the lifting them up or carrying them about for adoration and the reserving them for any pretended religious use are all contrary to the nature of the sacrament and to the institution of Christ. So you can see the things that were just listed. Um, they try to have the priest come to one person. They, they lift up the, the host, they call it, the uh, bread. and um, They try to uh, worship the bread itself instead of worshiping Christ. Um, they carry them around and make a whole show of it, walk around the room or maybe even go down the street with it, right? Reserving uh, some of it later to be used later. Or all these different abuses are contrary to um, the supper. Private masses were said for individuals. They're repudiated because by its very nature, it's communal. We, we're in this together. It's not being applied to one single person. Denying the cup to people. Um, who would do that? You're, you're ministering on behalf of Christ, and then you say, no, that person can't have it. It implies an erroneous understanding of the Lord's Supper. It's not for you to police or to charge a fee or, or express your anger in or whatever the reason for withholding the cup from that person. Um, now, 
in, if the leadership of the church has decided that that person is under discipline and is therefore excommunicated from the Lord's Supper, that's a whole different matter and that's allowable and um, scriptural. But the adoration of the elements arises out of a notion of transubstantiation. Think about it. If this bread has actually become the flesh of Christ, you'd be strongly tempted to worship. That's Christ right there in the flesh, right? Um, so the, it arises out of the error of transubstantiation, that the, but the divines are saying the bread is still bread. You should no more bow down before your bed, bread at breakfast than you should bow down before the bread at the Lord's Supper because bread at breakfast is bread at the Lord's Supper. Bread is bread. That's what they're saying. Right? So it helps us to think clearly about these matters. Section 5. The outward elements in this sacrament, duly set apart to the uses ordained by Christ, have such relation to him crucified as that truly, yet sacramentally only, they are sometimes called by the name of the things they represent, to wit, the body and the blood of Christ. Albeit in substance and nature, they still remain truly and only bread and wine as they were before. We can call it the body of Christ. We all know it's still bread, but in this instance, it's being used to symbolize the body of Christ. So we can say the body of Christ. It, it perfectly makes sense, and this is the same hermeneutical principle, interpretation principle, that we saw out of chapter 27. So it's applied here. Sacramental use applied to the bread and wine. It perfectly fits and lines up. Section 6, one of the abuses again. That doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood commonly called transubstantiation. Trans is when you change, right? Transport means you change from one location to another location, from one port to another port. Transubstantiation means you change the very substance of it. Transubstantiation, change the substance of it. It's no longer bread, now it's the flesh of Christ. That's what the word means. Um, by consecration of a priest or by any other way is repugnant not to Scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason, overthroweth the nature of the sacrament, and hath been and is the cause of manifold, which means many, superstitions, yea, of gross idolatries. So, this is very strongly and sufficiently repudiating transubstantiation in all of its practices. It does not even pass the test of logic, not to mention the test of Scripture. Just as the physical presence of Christ in days of his ministry did not guarantee a person's salvation just because Jesus happens to be standing 10 feet from you, nor does proximity to Jesus guarantee in the Lord's Supper the physical presence of Christ would not better evoke or convey salvation than the spiritual presence of Christ. The very nature of the sacrament is overthrown by this practice. Transubstantiation has been the cause of idolatry. People worship a piece of bread. Is that not idolatry? So this is a very strong and um, satisfying repudiation of transubstantiation. Back to section 7, the last um, statement of what we do believe, and then there's one more after this uh, uh, correction of an abuse again. Worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this sacrament, do then also inwardly, by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually, receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally, in, with, or under the bread and wine, 
yet as really but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. So this describes the right use of the Lord's Supper, the right participation. Denying the Lutheran teaching of the presence of Christ, they literally list it, in, with, or under the bread and wine. That's, those three prepositions are the classic statement of Lutherans. And they actually list it within the Westminster Confession of Faith so that we are denying explicitly what the Lutherans say about the Supper. Christ, his presence, is not in, with, or under the bread and wine. That's not sufficient, it's not clear, it's not accurate. Um, that is not to deny Christ's presence. He's present in the Lord's Supper, right? And Christ is really present. Really, right? Truly, but spiritually. That's the distinction. You want to say, how do the Lutherans view the Lord's Supper compared to how do uh, Reformed people, um, Presbyterian people view the Lord's Supper? This is it right here. This is a Presbyterian document. Uh, this shows what we believe as over against what the Lutheran Church believes. There are dear brothers in the Lord. We're not here to fight. We're just here tonight to be very clear about what we believe and how it differs from what the Lutheran Church believes. Christ is really present in the Supper, but not in a Roman Catholic understanding. He's really present in our Reformed and Presbyterian understanding. He's really present by the Holy Spirit. So it's spiritual presence with a capital S as he's received by faith, right? To the faith of the believers. Just as Christ is received by faith in the word, we trust in him, we could come to salvation, we could be converted by a sermon and trust in Christ. Christ is also present in the word. That doesn't mean the pages of your English Bible become the body and blood of Jesus. But by faith in the real Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, really present in the dynamic of the Lord's Supper, we dine with him, we sup with him. Okay? And the last section is denying um, other abuses, and then we're done for tonight. Okay? So this is section 8, the last one. Although ignorant and wicked men receive the outward elements in the sacrament, yet they receive not the things signified thereby, but by their unworthy coming thereunto are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, to their own damnation. Wherefore, all ignorant and ungodly persons, as they are unfit to enjoy communion with him, so are they unworthy of the Lord's table and cannot, without great sin against Christ, while they remain such, partake of these holy mysteries or be admitted thereunto. Wow. Okay, so what you have is one last strong statement how wrong it is to participate in the Lord's Supper if you're ignorant, which means without knowledge, or wicked, which means you're working against God. To take of those elements, they must think that they're getting a benefit from it. They're not getting a benefit, and it's not neutral. They're getting hurt by it. There's, instead of a blessing, they get a curse, in a sense. They, they get farther from God. They're guilty of more. They have more guilt instead of less guilt. They don't have forgiveness. They have more crimes, spiritual crimes, on their record. And it's possible to take the Lord's Supper but not commune with Jesus. It's possible to take the bread and the wine and not sup with Jesus Christ and have the blessing of a closer spiritual walk with him. So the ignorant, those who don't understand 
the body and blood of the Lord. They, they don't discern the Lord's body, as 1 Corinthians 11 says. And also those who are still living in an ungodly way have not repented, will not repent, have no intention of repenting, but somehow want to get blessings from God anyway, are not to come to the Lord's table. We ought not to serve them. They ought not to eat, right? Not that they're being barred from the worship service in which the table is administered. They're welcome to come to hear the gospel. They ought to be there in church. We ought to welcome them with open arms. But they're barred from the table. They can have the word heard, but not the word eaten. Okay? Where's the body of Christ? In a sense, if you think about Jesus Christ, the body of Christ Jesus is at the right hand of the Father after he ascended, right? And the distance there is covered by the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ ministering to us here in the Lord's Supper even though Christ himself is physically present at the right hand of the Father. So we commune with Christ crossing a distance by the Spirit crossing the location gap between heaven and earth. We feed on Christ spiritually. And what is the seal dynamic of the Lord's Supper? It's a confirmation of the union. If you have a graduation seal, they'll crimp your paper or else they'll add something to it, a wax thing or a gold thing that goes on. It's a seal that goes on that special piece of paper. That's a seal dynamic, right? It's a confirmation that that graduation certificate is real. It's genuine. So the seal dynamic of the Lord's Supper is a confirmation that your covenant with God is real. He truly has forgiven your sins. He really is a God to you and you really are his people. right? So you don't get a different Christ in the Lord's Supper than you get in the sermon. You get the same Christ in the Lord's Supper that you got in the Word, the Word proclaimed to you. But you might get Christ better There's something about being able to consume this bread. There's something about being able to consume this cup, to tangibly feel and to commune with Christ that's the closest we can get on earth. And so we get the same Christ by grace. He died and rose again for us that we get in the sermon. But in the Lord's Supper, there's something beautiful. There's something helpful. There's something wonderful about it to our spirits. And it builds up our faith And we get Christ better than we do simply verbally because we can taste it. We can smell it. We can eat it. So it's an even more digestible and tangible beauty of of walking close to Christ, um, supping with him, dining with him, than we can get in the verbal word preached. All right? We've seen tonight that uh, ministry of discipline and ministry of witness, and we've also seen tonight the sacraments. We covered what they are, and then baptism and the Lord's Supper in particular. And next week we will finish off. Let's pray. Thank you, our Father, for uh, giving to us uh, the gifts that you have, the ability to know the Lord Jesus and then to testify of you, the ability to see the pain of others and move towards them in ministry, We thank you for giving us the Lord Jesus who died and then rose again that we might belong to you. And we thank you for giving us these remembrances on earth, baptism once for all, um, administered to us, symbolizes Christ's once for all death. 
and then the baptism of the Lord's Supper constantly administered to us shows us your constant love for us and the existence of the covenant of grace. We pray that we might continue to use these rightly and be greatly blessed by them. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you.